Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in part four of our Exodus series. We are thinking about moving from talking about the sacred being here or the sacred being there to the sacred being in everything. So as we start today, answer this question. If God were to speak to you, what would God say? Enjoy. Today, we are thinking about this idea that the whole thing is sacred. But before we get there, I want to go back a little bit in Exodus so we understand where we've come from. Again, the book opens, picking up on the heels of Genesis, that Joseph and his whole family were in Egypt and they were on top of things. And then a new pharaoh came to power. And we've talked about this idea that there's always a new pharaoh who will come to power, and Pharaoh is never named in the book of Exodus for a reason, so that it's not a book about that Pharaoh that did something back there, so that it's about the living, active participants of the body of Christ now saying, can we name the Pharaohs in our current lives? Because Pharaohs oppress, that's what they do, and we need to name them, right, if if we're going to move and find some transformation going on in the world. Then we talked about some midwives and some really uh, strong women in the life of Moses who kind of gave him some DNA and some culture around justice. They gave him some eyes to see. He was born into a reality of people who already saw well the oppression of what was going on in the world. And so it's no surprise to us then that when Moses gets a little bit older, he realizes that everything is not quite cut out how it's supposed to be. He's asking these deeper questions already. He has this divine hum rumbling within him saying, there's more to this life after all. Maybe I should speak up when I see these Egyptians killing these Hebrews, right? He was primed for it the whole time. And with that reality, God is priming each of us at different times in this reality of transition and change. We are putting a finger on something saying, oh, there's this divine hum going on with me as well. And what if God is leading me towards something else? Would I dare take that risk into the next thing? But here's the deal. You can take that risk, and when you do that, you're in a moment of kind of participating with that divine hum. That's not the same thing as being in a rhythm of participating with the divine hum. Sometimes we have a state right, of like this bigger awareness of what's going on in the world, and every religious group is trying to do that, whether it's like the smelly smoke stuff or like the loud musical songs or whatever it may be. We're trying to create these ecstatic moments that say, oh, God is here. So that we can look out into the rest of our lives and say, oh, God is here. Does that make sense? We're trying to make it a lot bigger. We're trying to show people these sacred moments, these sacred states of being so that they get into a stage of life when they see everything as sacred. But sometimes what happens in the world of church is that we want people to keep coming back to this machine so they can keep experiencing a state of ecstasy here. But that is not the goal. 
My goal, our goal, Jesus' goal was to work himself out of a job, people, right? It was, I want to take you to a stage of awareness and connectivity and encountering the divine and humanity around you. That's even Jesus was like, I don't have a 40-year retirement plan. In three years, my people, I am out of here, right? Which is really important to understand. Jesus is trying to push us forward into this evolution so that we have this stage and this awareness that the sacred is around us at all times. So we're going to talk about that the whole thing is sacred today. And we're going to talk about that by the sacred site. We're going to talk about some sacred space. And then we've got to talk about the sacred name. And if we have those things brewing deep within us, then we're going to talk about some sacred action. Fair enough? Great. Exodus 3. Follow along with me. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. They're always shepherds. Am I right? All these guys. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing. I changed the translation here to amazing. Um, other ones in, in English translations will say strange. What I found really weird is that in most Christian translations, it says strange. And in most Jewish translations, it said amazing or marvelous or epic. Something's going on there. I'm not quite sure what. Um, but I want to know more. So this is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Anytime you see that going on in the Bible, like that double name thing, like this is just making you good readers of the Bible, you know something big is about to come afterwards, right? God's speaking to you. It's like Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Elijah, Elijah. Very common thing in the Bible. But when you see it, you say to yourself, pause, go get some coffee, settle in a second because the good stuff is coming, all right? Now you're good readers of the Bible. Let's do this. Here I am, Moses replied. And here's what I love about this story so much. God just spoke to you out of the middle of a bush. And here's what God says. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals. God likes a very tidy house, right? I kind of love that. The first words that God says to Moses are, the sandals, they got to go, right? That's kind of interesting to me. Um, For you are standing on holy ground. This word holy right here is kadosh, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. This is the first time the word holy is used in the Bible. Uh, and we'll talk about why that is important later. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, right? I'm reminding you of the past. I'm reminding you of covenant. I'm pulling you back to something that I've done before. I'm tethering you to that reality. And this is probably really important for people living in Los Angeles, living in 2017. You are not living your life in a vacuum. You are not completely independent of the rest of history, There have been people who have gone before you who are shaping your perspective and the reality that you have in this world. As much as they want to tell you that you and to yourself, right, are a manifest destiny in the center of the universe. Micah said this to me the other day. Where's Micah? Where'd you go? Hiding, right front row. Fantastic. Like, we live in a world where the little blue dot comes on when we open up our maps and we think, this is me. I'm the center of all things. This is wonderful, right? But that's not what's going on here. This is saying, no, 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 there's a lot that's happened before you. Honor that because it shaped where you are today. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Again, the word afraid is like the word for awe. It's not like I'm worried about a spanking's going to come. It's more of like, oh, this thing is bigger than I ever imagined. Whoa, right? 
It's like a pause. It's like, wow, I gotta, I gotta be around this. Like, oof, I gotta take a step back. I gotta take a breath in. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. Again, you should always notice the language of the Bible. We have lived in a world over the last 200 years where people are trying to convince us to go up to heaven, yet the Bible is constantly trying to tell us that God keeps coming down to earth, right? But here's something that God loves to do. Uh, So to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel had reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, which I always love, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is God's name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The four dots, by the way, if you were reading your Hebrew scriptures right now over your Hebrew cup of coffee, which you all do in the morning, you would come across four dots because you do not say the name of God, Yahweh. You insert it with something else. And the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Let's do this. Sacred sight. When Moses gets to the bush, he says, wow, look at this marvelous sight, this thing that's before me. The rabbis will talk about the story, and we've mentioned it here before. It's not that the bush started burning. It's that the bush was always burning, and Moses finally had eyes to see it, right? Most people don't see things as they are. They see things as they are. There's a big difference there. We pretend like we see things in an objective, absolute reality, but we're really seeing things from the perspective and the place that we are in today. And there's a million variables that change our sight in any given moment. You could be on cloud nine doing whatever, like Beyonce is blasting, heading to Hamilton tonight. Am I right? And someone will cut you off in traffic, and all of a sudden, that divine hum is very much 60 feet behind you, right? So it says when Moses is seeing the burning bush, Moses had had these moments, this state of seeing the divine. There clearly was something rumbling within him that he made these life decisions. He killed an Egyptian. We talked about maybe there was better decisions to make. But either way, the domino got pressed. And when those dominoes start falling, you have to live with life decisions sometimes. But here's the great thing. From the moment that Moses killed that Egyptian until now has been 40 years. So Moses has been in the desert gaining sight for the world. And that's incredibly important because we all live in the Instagram, I need it, I want it now. Again, it's been four days. What's going on? How come I haven't got the promotion at work yet? But the biblical story is have a little patience and let God develop you and shape you, and move you. Moses wasn't ready for the burning bush back here. 
Maybe Moses needed these 40 years out in the desert figuring some stuff out, making some great rhythms in life, getting to a different place where he just didn't have a state of ecstasy, but where he lived in a stage of life in which he could see life in a much fuller and more robust and bigger and beautiful way. My prayer for New Abbey all the time is that we get more people in the second half of life here who've lived well. We need people here who know that millennials like myself don't know a damn thing. That's incredibly important because I'm trying to prove myself and figure things out. Like I got like families to feed, but there's some people who are later on in life who are like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Oh, I've been there. Oh, yeah, man, when my kid went out of the house. Oh, yeah, when this person died. We need that perspective in life. And so what's going on here is that God is leading us to a bigger perspective and saying, yes, I want you to see some things as well, but maybe it's not at this state in life. Maybe you need to experience a lot of things, and then you'll move into a stage of life where you'll be able to more robustly see what God is doing. But here's how this works. You don't live well into the second half of life if you haven't done a good job living well in the first half of life. So we got to take that seriously. We need the therapists. We need the spiritual directors. We need community. We need to listen well to God's spirit that's shaping us so that when we get into the second half of life, we're like the Yoda sages, right? And not the people buying a Lamborghini because we're still trying to prove ourselves at 65 years old. Does that make sense? There's a big difference in being there. And we're looking for healthy people who are at a, at a farther along perspective and they have a broader sight of what God is doing. And when you've had more time, then you can begin to see for things as they are in a much wider way. Jesus is always saying words like this, right? If you have eyes to see, then see. If you have ears to hear, then hear. And it's, and it's kind of confusing language until you've sat with Jesus, until you've gone through some transformation, and you say, man, I see the world in a way that I never used to see it before. But that happens when we listen to the divine hum when we take the appropriate risks and we take the appropriate actions and when we've lived into that thing long enough, then we can look back and have a different perspective of it. Any of you ever had a traumatic event in life and when you're in that moment, you have a very specific perspective of what just happened there. But you come back to that event five, 10 years later and you've done some healthy work and it's like, you, like the movie's playing with all new colors, there's different sound, the conversations are different, there's way more depth to it. Like this is incredibly important for us to understand is that we are coming, every moment is its own moment to look back at the past in a new way. And what God's trying to open us up to is to have better sight to see that everything that has gone before us is a sacred moment. So that when we move into the future, we recognize that everything is sacred ahead. And that's a big shift in perspective that doesn't always happen earlier in life. So Moses saw something big. He had the sacred sight. He saw things in a new way. And then we need to talk about sacred space. The word holy happened there when God asked Moses to take off uh, his sandals. And it's a word for kadosh. Kadosh is never used before in the rest of the Bible. It is used earlier in Genesis for a word called sacred, but that's not the same thing as holy. In the Hebrew language, all, all words, they're, they're root words. So there's like three consonant letters, and it's not till later in history that we added vowels to these things. And so what happens with this root word for holy is that we, we think about holy as something that's set apart or over there or untouchable. 
Instead of thinking about holy and sacred as this thing that is engulfing all of us in a new way. So we think of it as separation language instead of inclusive language. So I think what happens for Moses is that he experiences a state of God's holiness. And then what God is trying to do is not only take Moses, but the entire people of Israel into a stage of holiness. Of saying, what I want you to realize is it's not about that this moment alone was holy. It's about recognizing that this holy moment will open you up to the fact that everything is holy. And Jesus was great at doing this all of the time. Jesus was always good at taking people into God-forsaken places where the sinners were, where the prostitutes were, where the people who drank too much were, where the whoever, because that's not holy, people were. And Jesus was good at saying, no, 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 where you thought God wasn't is exactly where God is. And what's happened over the world of religion is that we want to keep saying like God is here or God is there. This is Richard Rohr language. Instead of God is everywhere and always. That the script is not about saying, oh, this is the place in which I encountered God. And now this is the only place that I can keep encountering God. I did that as a kid. I encountered God in a very specific way where I had to come to a very specific service. We had to sing very specific Chris Tomlin songs, Michael W. Smith as well and a little Amy Grant, El Shaddai, come on, 1997, going strong. And then I would get myself emotionally worked up. We would talk about things that all teenage boys do, and then I would weep in the front and be like, yep, I did it, I did it. I need to come forward, right? I did it again, and I did it again. I came forward a lot of times. Because I was told that this is the place in which I experience God. But what I needed to be told is, no, 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 this moment is shaping you, but what you need is to experience God in all things. And so God is pushing us in the book of Exodus from a state of experiencing holiness to a stage of experiencing holiness. And that will keep opening itself up as the book of Exodus goes along, is that God doesn't bring everybody back to the burning bush. God keeps showing God's self as God is on the move everywhere that they go. But what we all do is this, we have a place in which we originally experience God and we tell ourselves, well, if I experience God here, then surely everyone else must experience God here, right? And that's where religion goes bad. Where religion goes good is we can say, oh, I experienced God here because God was always here. And then when I look behind me and I look in front of me and I look around me, I begin to say, oh, God's been around me the entire time. And isn't it ironic that we, we work so hard to make sacred spaces, but what God's trying to do is say, no, 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 the whole thing is sacred. One other thing with that, in Genesis uh, 2, when God talks about um, time as sacred, so God has finished creating everything, and the first thing that God calls sacred is time. And this is completely revolutionary in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you had sacred spaces, because you all wanted to know of, this is where our God meets at a very particular time, at a very particular moon harvest festival, and we do very particular things to make this God appear, right? Common language. Still do that today in all of our own ways. But the God of the Bible comes along and says, no, 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 time is now sacred, and I inhabit all of time. And that's a revolutionary thought. So God shows up in spaces at times to make a point, but God is constantly trying to pull us back into this reality that God has always been in all things. That's when you hear God talked about in like Isaiah and Revelation. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
The holiness of God is talked about in being in the eternity of all things, which is very important. Because if not, what we want to do is go find that mountain and that bush, and that's the thing that's going to solve our lives and show us who and what God really is. And I'm saying all that of how do we step out of that reality and say, no, 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 the whole thing's holy in a new way. So if we have a sacred perspective and we can move beyond sacred spaces, let's talk about the sacred name. In the Hebrew Bible, there's these four letters, these four consonants for the name Yahweh. And when we're we're given the name Yahweh, we don't even know if that's what the word is. And the reason for that is that we didn't put vowels into the Hebrew Bible until somewhere into the Middle Ages. So before that, on the Day of Atonement, was the only time in history that the Jews would say the name of God. And it was only the high priest who would say Yahweh's name on the Day of Atonement, which would have been yesterday, right? And he would come out and he would speak the name of Yahweh and a blessing all over the people of Israel for the sins that had committed previously and then to bless and to submit their names down in a book of life moving forward. And then the rest of the time, God's name wasn't mentioned. And then 70 AD happens and the Romans destroy the temple. And from that moment on, there's no more priesthood in Israel and the Jews stop saying the name of God. And then what happened in the scriptures is we would insert, instead of Yahweh, it would say things like Lord. Um, where we would talk about this is who God is, but we kept removing ourselves farther and farther from the name of God. But here's what's so great and so awesome about living in a time and place like we do now, and we have things like archaeology, which how many of you are like, yes, archaeology, that's what I was looking for this morning, is that when we find new and more ancient like documents, what we find is that, oh, we can get closer to the name of God, and what we find is that what the name of God was was probably just simply a breath. It was simply, yeah. And this is not unique to Judaism. In most ancient religions, the word for God always sounds like a breath. Maybe there's something to that. Then in Genesis 1-3, when the spirit of God hovers over the water and creates, the word for spirit there is ruach. And the word for ruach not only means spirit, but it also means wind and it also means breath, which is incredibly important. Because it's almost like God was saying from the very beginning, as human beings, you are gonna do your darndest job making sure that nobody can get close to me, right? You're gonna work really, really hard at creating institutions and religions that control and tame who this God is. But this God has always been as close as your own breath. Now, isn't that freeing? No pope, no pastor, no religion, no doctrine, no creed, none of that gets in the way of the fact that you breathing in and out every day is simply your reminder that the sacred has always been with you. Now that's freeing. And we live in a world that wants to put separation in there, and we're going to come back and say, no way, my friends. I love in the Hawaiian culture, a word for God is just ha, it's breath again. And that's why when, when, when the white man came to the Hawaiian Islands, right, they would call white people Hallies. And Hallies were just simply people who had a separation from the breath of God. Because when Hawaiians met, they would do the, you know, grab each other's hands and a little Eskimo kiss. Their ha, their breath, their ruach, the spirit was right next to one another and they were exchanging this divine life from one another. But when the white man came, there was separation and we shook hands and there was, their breath was far apart is what Hale means. And what happens is as people groups become more powerful, as people groups begin to own and control more things, interestingly enough, we also begin to create more separation between God. 
And yet, the more ancient we go in our scriptures, the more ancient we look at any culture, we realize that God was always right in front of us, directly right there the entire time. And isn't that way more interesting? A God who can't be controlled, a God who is always as close as our breath. And so we have a sacred perspective that the bushes have been burning the entire time. Will we have eyes to see that God is already all around us? And we enter into sacred space saying, oh, if God can be here, then God can be there and there and there and everywhere. We enter into a sacred name saying, oh, no, no, the name of God is not something that I control. It's not owned by a denomination. It's not owned by a particular group. It's not owned by the biggest, biggest megachurch. It's not owned by any of those things. It's already been right at hand. As Jesus says, oh, the spirit of God is like the wind. It comes and goes as it pleases. Isn't that interesting? We move from here or there to everywhere and always. And then I love the final sacredness that God invites us into and that's action. We have lived in a world of cognitive theology. Great, you experience God. Now what you need to do is apologetically and theologically get trained and go to seminary and learn some things so that when people give you a question, then you have the appropriate response for them, and you can tell them what Calvin said here and a little bit of Wesley, and sometimes we'll talk about the Catholics, right? Um, That's kind of how things go in my world growing up in the church that I grew up in. But then what happens is that we learn of like, that's not the thing that connects me to God is my cognitive theology and where I place the theological furniture in my mind. Jesus never quizzes his disciples on defining a more robust view of the Trinity. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, now can you explain the atonement to me from a Lutheran point of view, right? Jesus says, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me when I was in prison? Jesus is saying, if you really have experienced the sacred, whether it was a moment in time, in space, or somehow you had that existential moment that you'll never be able to explain, but we all knew what happened on that sunset on that day. And if you really experienced that thing, then that thing will move you in justice towards the oppressed and the hurting in the world. Because that's where this holy and sacred God has always been going. So if you're truly experiencing this thing, then Jesus is going to say, show me the proof. Show me the money, right? The proof is in the pudding. If you're hanging out with the poor, if you're hanging out with the marginalized, if you're hanging out with the hurting, then I really know that you're experiencing the sacredness that is in everything. And those things always need to cross. We need to have some type of intersectionality between the sacredness that is God and, who God is and what God is doing and the reality that social justice and action and making a difference in the world is the heart of God. Sitting on our butts and learning more theology every Sunday is not what God intended. If we're not leaving this place and just saying, all right, now that I know that God is in everything, then I don't have to wait for the church's permission to say, go feed the hungry on Thanksgiving. It might be a broken person sitting next to you in your cubicle. And what God is stirring within you is just taking them to lunch and listening. It might be that you went by that homeless person seven times on the same off-ramp, but today you know you're going to pack a lunch so that you have something to hand them. And tomorrow you know you're going to get out of your car and you're going to learn what's going on in their lives. And the next day you know when you find out their name and you care about who they are, you're going to introduce them to housing works and wraparound services and therapy, and you're going to get them off the street because you're going to have done your homework and your research about what it takes to get somebody out of chronic homelessness. I don't care what the issue is, but don't be waiting for someone to tell you to participate in the sacred. The sacred is already around you. Open your eyes to it and go. 
And then if you need help and support, ask me and Brittany. Our job is not to convince you of our vision and for you to give us more power. Our job is to empower you and to follow the sacred that you are already going towards. And if you need help figuring out what the divine hum is leading you towards, if you need help stepping into action, then let us give our hours of our week that you're affording us to supporting the vision of what God is already doing. All right. I'll take that. No need to keep going on after a clap. So let's answer this question. What's one action step you can take to move from a sacred state to a sacred stage? For me, I just gave an example of, I was overwhelmed by the amount of chronically homeless people that were in Pasadena. And so I've spent the last four years in committee meetings and with nonprofits and talking to everyone who knows something about homelessness so that when I meet someone who's homeless, if I meet a woman in particular who's homeless, I already know that Pasadena will house them within 24 hours. I just have to know the right numbers to call, right? I might feel powerless at times to look out at the epidemics that are going on in our world, but we're not helpless. And we can learn some things It will just take time. Enjoy this question. What's one practical step you can take to move from a sacred state to a sacred stage? Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.